a person applies for uh, the free church ministry and a, a person applies to become a free church minister one of the many things that happens at that very moment is that that person is inundated with uh, advice you know advice comes from all corners you know from former ministers uh, from current ministers from older students from from everyone now uh, one piece of advice that sticks in my mind that came from a retired minister in the church. Now this, this, this man was speaking to uh, our seminary class just a few days before we graduated. And the thing that struck me was that this man was speaking with regret. You know, he was looking back on his time as a minister and he was saying that, that he really feels as though he never furnished his congregation with a sufficient theology of suffering. Do you see it? You know, he looks back in his ministry and he thinks, actually, do you know what? I never adequately prepared the people of God for the difficulties, you know, the real suffering of the Christian life. And here was this man and he's standing before us and, and he's urging us not to do the same thing. This morning, we're looking at a portion of scripture that I'm guessing you know really well. Is that not the case? I doubt very much that there's anyone in here who does not know this story. Jesus calming the waters in the Sea of Galilee. We know the story. Yes, we know that in this story, there are lessons that we learn about storms. About how we cope with the difficulties of the Christian life. But the thing that I want you to grasp right at the start here is that this story teaches us these lessons. How? The story focuses us on Jesus. That you and I as Christians are only prepared for the difficulties of the Christian life, for the suffering of the Christian life, if you and I are fixed on, absolutely focused on, the one who is the saviour of our souls. So what we'll do is we'll pray and then we'll turn back in our Bibles to Mark chapter 4. So friends, please bow with me before the throne of grace. Let's ask God for help. Lord in heaven, we come with a sense of trepidation as we consider your power in uh, this story. We come before you and we ask, Lord, humbly in the name of Jesus Christ for a display of that power this morning. As we come to scripture, we pray that you would illuminate us, that we have understanding of this story, this account that we read in Mark's gospel, but we are praying a greater prayer. We, we pray, Lord, that you would apply this, that you would place lessons, truths from this story upon our hearts. And we also ask, Lord, that you would save. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, friends, if you haven't already, uh, please turn back uh, to Mark's Gospel and Mark chapter 4. And uh, from verse 35, have that open in front of you. Let's consider a few things we see here, things that we learn in this story. First of all, we learn that there's purpose in the storm. Okay, that's the first thing. There's purpose 
in the storm. Purpose. Okay, if you've, if you've got it there, you're looking at it. Do you notice the first detail that we see here at the beginning? Look at this. So we're told that this event took place at night time. <laughs> we're told that this storm, this trip to Galilee, happened in the evening. Uh, do you see even there uh, what we're being told? Like Mark is teaching us there that, you see all of those parables that we've been looking at over the last few weeks? Do you remember them all? Go through them. You know, the parable, the sower. What was it? The parable of the light and the stand and then the parables about the kingdom of God. Mark, I think, is teaching us there that, that, get that, Jesus preached all of those parables. It would seem over the course of one day and then at night they're in the boat and they sail across. So it happens in the evening. It's dark. Okay, we get that. Also, I wonder, uh, do you remember what we said at the very beginning of the sermon series? A number of weeks ago now. We said that when you're looking at Mark's gospel, you should be able to detect the influence of Peter. You know, it's almost like when Mark's writing this, this book here, it's almost like Peter... The Apostle Peter's kind of standing on his shoulder, and he's retelling a lot of this sort of stuff. He's, he's telling Mark what it's like as Mark puts it down. So you've got the, the influence of Peter. Now, here's my question for you. Do you not see that influence here in the story? Do you see what I mean by that? Aren't there just a lot of, just nuggets of eyewitness detail? In the story. Aren't they? I mean, look at this. What does Mark say? He says that the disciples took Jesus across. Look at what he says. They took Jesus across just as he was. Isn't that nice? You know, Jesus is already in the boat. I mean, what do we know? He's been teaching from the boat. And Peter's seen this, relayed this to Mark. And, you know, the disciples came across just He's already there just as he was. And then look at the other sort of... I love this eyewitness detail. I think we pass this by an awful lot. There were other boats. There were other boats. Isn't that something? You know, a lovely, you know, gem of eyewitness detail. Not just one boat, but a few going across here. So there's eyewitness detail, and I think we'll come back to this later. Most likely, Peter. Peter was there. Now, many of you aren't from the UK. Many of you are either passing through on holiday or you're, you're living in, uh, in the UK for a couple of years, right? Maybe most of you. Now, one thing you'll definitely have noticed as you've come into this country, you'll notice this, no doubt, us Brits utterly obsessed with the weather. Is that not the case? Utterly obsessed. You know, if you take a trip to Scotland, you will find that Scottish people talk about nothing else other than maybe football and the weather. That's it. Now you would expect because of that, that we are experts about the weather, right? And in actual fact, nothing could be further from the truth. We have, we like to moan about the weather. We love to moan about the weather, but we have no idea about the weather, you know, where the weather comes from, how the weather's formed. It's a complete mystery to us. Now, here's the thing. Think about the story. Think about the story. The weather here, absolutely crucial. Because you see that the Sea of Galilee, 
was a, an incredibly sort of a volatile place to be weather-wise. You know, you had air, and it would sweep down from nearby Mount Hebron. It would sweep down, and then it would meet this hot air that was rising from Galilee. And even as a Scotsman, I know what happens when cold air hits hot air. What happens? Storms happen. And that's what happens here. But this is what I want you to get. This story, this storm in Mark 4, it was no ordinary storm. See, in Galilee, storms usually, almost always, form at midday or in the afternoon. And what did we notice? This storm is formed at night in the evening. Something that always suggested this was going to be a ferocious storm. Something that spelt real danger to the people of Galilee. Let me ask you this. How are you picturing the boat? I was wondering this earlier on in the week, you know. Especially for the boys and the girls here. When you think about the disciples and the boat with Jesus, what do you picture? Do you picture a big sort of fishing vessel? Something substantial with a few floors on the go. Is that what we're thinking, is it? Absolutely not. See, recent archaeological findings have revealed first century Galilean fishing boats. And you hear this? They were pathetic. I mean, these things were tiny, man. Like just little boats, incredibly fragile looking things. You could maybe fit, I don't know, 12 to 15 guys on there, but you're going to be forcing them in. So, so are, you, are you with me? Are you picturing the scene now? These disciples going across in the darkness and the storm whips up and the water is massive and it's pouring in, we're told, and they're going down. And what does Mark emphasize more than all of the other gospel writers? What does he emphasize? You see the men on the boat, the disciples. Now listen to this. These experienced Galilean fishermen. What Mark emphasizes is that they were freaking I mean, these men were panicking. Never seen anything like this. They were scared for their life. Do you see it? This was no ordinary storm. This here was ferocious. What do we learn? Well, I know that some of you in the congregation have been to Italy. In recent times, I know that some of you have been to Florence. And I know that some of you have been to the Uffizi Gallery in Florence. Now, if you are looking for them, when you go round the Uffizi Gallery in Florence, you see some religious art that depicts the Church of Jesus Christ as a boat. You know, you go around, there's, there's statues there, there's actual paintings there that will depict the Church of Jesus Christ as a boat. Now, do you see why that is? I like it. You know, the, the early church, earliest Christians, they've looked at this story, Mark chapter 4, and they've seen these things as a metaphor for those who are traveling through this world in intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you like it? You know, what are we? What's London City Presbyterian Church? What's this? This is a boat. 
You know, this is a boat traveling in intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ. I love it. But do you see what we learn in Mark chapter 4? Traveling in intimacy through this life with the Lord Jesus Christ does not exempt the people of God from storms. You see that, don't you? Just because we are today by salvation in the boat with Jesus Christ, it does not mean for a second that the waters of our lives are always going to be calm. And I really want to ask you, as a congregation this morning, do we, do you think we really appreciate that? Are we really truly getting that, especially if you are young in the faith? I ask you, don't we think of life like this? As Christians, we think, we look ahead and we think, well, yes, if we're a young Christian, we think, yes, the, yeah, of course, there's going to be trouble at some stage in our lives. It's bound to be, it's the way things are. Yeah, there's going to be illness. Yes, there'll be some problems, but come on. I'm a Christian. I'm with Jesus. Things are going to be different for me. The waters, they're going to be smoother. They're going to be calmer for me. Do you think like that? Can I ask you this morning to really, truly consider the story? Consider the severity of the storm for the disciples. Do you see that the Christian life is not just one of slight difficulties? We are people called to follow in the footsteps of one who truly suffered. The Christian walk. It is one of life-altering crises. Now, as I say that, do you worry? If you're a young Christian here, do you, does that intimidate you? What I think God does in his grace is even at the beginning of this story, he gives us comforts to cling on to. See, let me ask you this. Now, think about the text. Let me ask you this. Who is it that instigates the whole situation? Look at verse 35. Who instigates this? Look at it. This journey across the lake into the darkness. It's Jesus. Like surely, don't you think with a supernatural divine knowledge that a storm would be formed? What does he do? He takes his disciples out into the darkness. He takes his disciples knowing it's coming. He takes them out into the depths. Do you see that the storms in our lives, the difficulties of our lives, they're not a surprise to our God, he sovereignly governs over these things. Christ instigates this. And then I ask you another question. Please hear it. Why does he do it? I mean, there's real fear and panic for his people here, isn't there? I mean, there's genuine, genuine terror for these disciples. Why would Jesus do this? Why would he instigate this? Why is it? He's using the storm to display to his people more of his power. Isn't that an encouragement for us? Doesn't that change the way that we view the difficulties in our lives? What does God do? Why does Jesus do it? There's purpose. Do you see it? The storms of our lives are used by your Savior to display to you more of his might. To show you more of his grace, to, to display to you, to lay before you more of his glory. There's purpose. There's purpose in these things. Friends, as I uh, look around the congregation this morning, 
as I know many of your situations, I know that you know all too well the reality of storms in the Christian life. Don't you? Let me give you this. I read it this week, and there's truth here. Listen to this. The writer says that come that final resurrection morning, all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will know that every affliction was good for them. And we will know on that resurrection day, and we will thank God, we will thank God for every single storm. There's purpose in the storm. Okay. Second thing we see is that there's revelation in the storm. There's purpose in the storm. We see that. There's also revelation in the storm. <coughs> Excuse me. Isn't it? Isn't that an amazing detail that you've got in front of you? That is one of the great details of Scripture. The fact that the Lord Jesus Christ was asleep in the boat. Isn't that marvellous? That tells us, if you think about that, that tells us a lot of of stuff about Jesus. I think primarily, you see what it does? It confronts you this morning very much with the humanity of Jesus, doesn't it? What do we say? Here is a man who has been teaching all day long, going through all those parables, and at the end of the day, He's tired, he's exhausted, and he sleeps. It's a great detail, isn't it? But surely what's much more remarkable is what our Lord does when he is rudely awoken by the disciples. Now, here's how I want to play it. I will read the verse. I would ask you to imagine what it's like. So we've painted the portrait of the darkness and the storm absolutely raging. The water is pouring into the boat and the disciples are freaking out. Now listen, let me read what happens. The disciples, they woke Jesus and they said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He he got up. He rebuked the wind And he says to the waves, be quiet, be still. And the wind, it died down. I mean, come to it anew. I mean, come to it anew. Do you see this? He stands. He rebukes the wind. He says to the waves, shut up. Now, what is going on here? I think if we're going to understand this, we have to appreciate the context here a little. Um, What is Mark's gospel? Mark's gospel is a jigsaw. Do you see that? Like what we've seen over the last number of weeks is Mark is building up a picture for you and for me, a picture of Jesus' identity, isn't he? It's like a jigsaw. You've had a piece where we learn what? Jesus has power over illness. Another piece, Jesus has power over demons. Another piece, Jesus has got power to call people from sin. So I'm asking you, do you see what this piece of the jigsaw here is teaching us? What is it? Jesus has power over nature. 
Now you stop and think about that, please. He's power over nature. This man in the boat has power over the weather, power over the elements, power over the winds and the waves. Do you see, he has power over nature, the forces of nature themselves. Here's what I'm wondering. Are we seeing the biblical significance of that? Now, are you coming to this story and thinking scripturally? See, throughout uh, the Old Testament, the control of nature was a sort of distinguishing sign of the presence of God himself. You see that, don't you, throughout Scripture? You know, uh, in the Old Testament, uh, man panics, man flees in the face of a natural disaster. But our God, what about God? God, (laughs) God controls these things. He controls the forces of this world. Let me read to you Psalm 107. We're going to sing this. Now listen to the message, Psalm 107. It's It's not man, it is God who makes the storm still. It's not man. It is God who makes the waves hush. So I'm asking you this morning, do you see the significance of the piece of the jigsaw? Do you? This isn't so much just teaching us that Jesus has power over nature. What is it teaching us? It's teaching us that Jesus possesses the very power of almighty God himself. Do you see it? He's not just power over nature. This is divine power. And if you think about the text, you'll see that that is true. See, I know that some of you have got dogs. You know, the enemy of postmen and of visiting ministers, you know. You've got dogs, or at least, you know, you've been around dogs when you were younger. You know, you know what it's like. How do dogs behave? The owner takes the dog to the park and the dog inevitably runs away, doesn't it? And then it'll get too far away so the owner will shout for the dog and the dog's running and it's pelted along after the ball or whatever. But if it's an obedient dog, what happens? It hears, recognises his owner's voice. That's my master's voice. A voice with the dog will stop turn around and will come to heal. Isn't that right? If it's an obedient dog anyway. I'm asking you though, isn't that what happens in Mark chapter 4? You see what I mean? Jesus stands in that boat. What does he do? Does he put in a request for the waves to be still? Is that what he does? Does he ask politely that the wind would calm down a little bit? Does he do that? No, what does he do? He rebukes the wind. He orders. He commands the waves to shush. And what happens? They recognize his voice. Their master's voice. The voice of authority. The one who brought them into being in the first place. The one who has created the waves, created the wind. They know this voice. This is the voice of their master. And so what happens? They come to heal at the feet of Jesus. Do you see it? The forces of nature, they have to obey because this is the voice of Almighty 
God. And I asked him, what do we do with that? How do we apply that just now? Can I give you three S's briefly? One, that there should color our view of our Savior. Shouldn't it? I say from the pulpit time and again, I think it is true that we have too domesticated a view of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's too tame, isn't he? You know, it's gentle Jesus. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And there's truth in that, but would you not see it in light of the story? Our Savior is one who has at his fingertips the power of Almighty God. I mean, just now we should bow before him, bow at his might and his majesty and his grace. Two, this should color our view of our salvation, shouldn't it? Would you do this with me? Would you consider Calvary? Consider the events of Calvary. Your Lord Jesus hit across the face. He is spat upon. He has that horrible sign placed above his cross. He has his hands taken and forced to planks of wood, nails driven through them. You consider that and then you consider this story. You see it? Like at any point! <laughs> At any time, he could have whipped up a hurricane. He could have split the earth and have it swallow all his foes. Couldn't he consider the power of Jesus? What does he do? What does he do? Nothing. Isn't there a stunning inactivity from Jesus at the cross? And you see why, of course, don't you? He did nothing for you. He knew he had to submit to win for you salvation. And then three, this should, of course, color our view of our storms. And of course it should, shouldn't it? I mean, you you think about it, surely this is true, that we go through difficulties in this life as Christians, and yet despite that, despite our faith, we feel so vulnerable in these situations, don't we? We go through a catastrophe in our life, a storm, and we feel alone, we feel helpless, we just feel isolated. Do you feel like that? Consider the truth. You're in the boat with Jesus. You are in, by faith, the boat with Jesus. And he's not just a saviour. What's the truth we're seeing? He is a saviour of infinite, divine power. A saviour who will not allow anything to happen to you. That he is not the key being for your eternal, everlasting good. Friends, we should look at this story And we should be amazed. Because what we see here is Jesus. The nature of Jesus. He was human. He slept in the boat. But what's the other thing we see? He's divine. He woke 
he spoke and the forces of nature they came to heal friends look at Mark 4 and behold your God so we see there's purpose in the storm we see there's revelation Jesus' identity in the storm the last thing we consider is that there is forgiveness forgiveness in the storm Okay, the section of scripture that you've got in front of you, it ends, <coughs> excuse me, with a first in a series of rebukes. I don't know if you noticed that or not. So, it's a first in a series of occasions where Jesus will rebuke his disciples for their lack of faith. And, you know, if you put your thinking cap on, you can see why that is, can't you? Who are these guys in the boat? Who are they? What are they? They're believers. Aren't they? I mean, they're disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're people who have given up everything to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. They've had the secret of the kingdom of God revealed to them. These are a group of believers. (laughs) And yet, what happens? In the midst of a storm, they lose confidence in Christ. Isn't that what happens? Isn't there just before you an amazing sort of failure of faith? The storm hits and they panic, they freak out. They get angry with Jesus. They think he doesn't care for them. Listen to me. This is what they think. Listen. They think that Jesus has fallen asleep on them in their hour of greatest need. That's what they think. Now, of course, come on, come on. Of course, we're learning there, we're seeing there what Jesus wants from his people when we hit difficulties, when a storm strikes. What does he want us to do? He wants us to trust in him, to look to him, to believe in him, right? That's not what I want to focus on. I want to ask you, if you're a Christian, have you been there? Like where those disciples are, what Jesus rebukes those disciples for. As a Christian, have you been there? Have you had a failure of faith? You know, has there been an instance in your life where there's been catastrophic difficulties? And even fleetingly in that situation, you found yourself doubting Jesus. <laughs> even like you're perhaps despising Jesus, questioning Him, you know, wondering, do you really care for me, Jesus? Why aren't you active, Jesus? Have you been there? Has there been a failure of faith? And can I ask, does that trouble you? Friends, what do we see here? We see that there is forgiveness in Christ for that. There is forgiveness for Christ, in Christ for that. See, what did we say at the start? What did we say we come back to? Who is most likely in this boat? Who's there? Most likely Peter is there. Who else? Come on, the fishermen. James and John and Andrew. 
What happens to these men? Come on! Despite catastrophic failures and confidence in Christ, Jesus forgives those men. He goes on to use them mightily for the furtherance of his kingdom. Wait a minute. Despite their failure, where are they? They're still in the boat. He takes them across Galilee. They're still in the boat. Do you see it? There is forgiveness in Christ for our feelings of faith. And so surely there is nothing for it. But for you and I as Christians, this morning, right now, to praise Jesus for the nature of the gospel. Like you see what I mean by that, don't you? We praise Jesus just now that our salvation it is not dependent on the strength of our faith. You recognize that? That our salvation is not dependent on the steadiness, sturdiness of our faith. It's not. What is it dependent upon? It is dependent upon what Christ has already done for us. And I ask you, what was that? What has he done? He's lived a life of perfect faith. He's done what you cannot do. He's lived this life of unerring, unshakable trust in his heavenly Father. And then what has he done? Think of Gethsemane. Despite the fact that we fell asleep on him in his hour of greatest need, despite the fact that he possessed all the power in the universe to avoid it, what has he done? He has gone to the cross. And he has submitted himself to death. Death, even on a cross. We should praise God that our salvation does not rest here. It does not rest in us. It rests in what our Savior has done. And so we end like this. I've spoken all this time to believers and your storms. Let me end by speaking to every single one of you. Would you please listen to me? We'll come into land with this. See this one in the boat. This man commanding the forces of nature. Who is this. You see, Mark is so clever, so clever. At the end here, he has the disciples, they reach the shore, you know, they reach the other side of the storm. And they're asking themselves, they're like, oh, who is this? It wind and the waves obey him. Who is this? But Mark's clever, isn't he? You see what he's really doing. You see what the Holy Spirit is doing. He is asking you that question. Right now, the Holy Spirit of Almighty God challenges you to answer that question. Who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? Who do you see he is? Are you, are you telling me, are you, are you blind to his glory? Or maybe, I don't know, for the first time this morning, has the Holy Spirit worked in your heart? Do you see, actually, no, I see his identity, I see his power, I recognize his glory. If that is you, pray now for forgiveness. Because what did we say? What did I say? The boat, how did I describe the boat? Pathetic. 
small and fragile. You see, don't you? There is room enough in that boat for you this morning. What are you going to do? Who is this? Will you not come aboard today? Will you not come aboard and be given by the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, shelter from the storm? Let's pray.